Everybody, Norm over here. I want to tell you about one of my favorite bass players of all time who's doing this podcast with us, Jason Sheff. Now, Jason played bass with Chicago for about 20 years, sang on a lot of their big hits, and he's one of the most amazing bass players and singers. And to be able to do it the way he does of that quality is really outstanding. You just don't hear a lot of singing bass players that can kill it in both directions at the same time. So stay tuned for Jason Chef. And by the way, Jason's dad was Elvis's bass player. So interesting episode. Norm over here. We're at the Norm's Red Guitars podcast, and I've got two really good buddies of mine, uh, just both amazing players. I've got my friend Jason Sheff, who played with Chicago for many, many years, uh, one of the greatest singing bass players and bass players and singers and all of the above, just a great musician all the way around, and my buddy Tim Pierce, who is like at home in Norm's Red Guitars. He's like my sidekick for a, a number of these episodes of the podcast and I always love his playing played with more people than anybody I know and uh, he makes so much money playing I always try to borrow money from him but he always kind of looks at me funny when I ask him what's the deal with that Timmy I want you to lift yourself up by your bootstraps. <laughs> oh is that what it is I wasn't sure <laughs> teach a man to fish and he'll fish for the rest of his life. I that's mean, it. Give him yeah. a fish, and he just eats the fish. So that's well, what I'm trying to teach you, buddy. All I can say <laughs> is this guy just plays with so many people, and there's a reason for it because he plays the tasteful right stuff. And that was sort of like a, a thing, like uh, Meters had a thing called the sissy strut. And, uh, you know, that's kind of a takeoff on that in a way. It's just some it's funk. influence. Inspired by. We don't want to take the copyright, but we want to be uh, inspired by the sissy strut. By there you go. The meters, yeah. Well, that's a good tune. And my buddy Leo Nocentelli was a guitar player on that. Zigaboo and all those guys from Obviously, the Obviously, you know him, right? You I know do him. know him. Oh, yes, I great. do. You know everybody. Okay. Yeah. Really great guy and great guitar player. One of the all-time funky guitar players. But uh, since uh, Timmy is my like partner in crime and one of my buddies and always here at the store, he only lives a few blocks from the store. That's right. So what whenever he's not working, and that's not too often, but whenever it is, he's at the store hanging out. And uh, we're always glad to have him. And it's like uh, a guitar lesson every time he plays. Thank you. But uh, Jason and Tim, you guys go back a long way, don't you? We do. Yep, I hired Tim on a demo for a song called We Can Last Forever that was on Chicago 19. 19. And I'd heard a lot about him, and uh, my co-writer was working with 
I think it was uh, Tom. Tom Ware. Yeah. Tom Ware. And so they were like, yeah, get Tim. It was great. So Tim came to play. and um, That song ended up on the record, didn't it? It did. That's, which is what you're after when you make a demo. That's right. You know, do, they make just masters these days. But that back then we made demos. And mm -hmm. if everything went well, it ended up on the record. And yeah. Well, that's the thing with Tim Pierce is that, uh, you know, most everything that he plays on goes to record somewhere <laughs> along the line. He's the most recorded guitar player I know these days. You know, it was shortly after that that I called him. He says, "I don't do that anymore, Jason. want to hire me for the record?" And so we ended up hiring him for yeah. the record. So I, <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about Jason's past a little bit here because uh, his checkered past. Uh, his checkered past. But I've met his dad a few times, and uh, he was. Uh, Elvis's bass player for so mm -hmm. many years, yes. and Jerry Chef. And uh, how is your dad doing? He's good. He's over in um, Europe, I believe. He just moved or is moving to Berlin. So he's like, uh, Europe's a perfect place for him. He's just like a classic hippie, you know, really? that, that just loves uh, being over over there, and and uh, I think simple life, and and just uh, really progressive and. He's um he's doing great. He's doing great. Playing. Do do people know that he played with Elvis? Does he play that down and not tell people unless they kind of find out through a detective or something? Or uh... he, they do. I I think you know the work that he does. People uh, seek him out. There are, there are a few a few artists over there that hire him, and they I think they I think they may do some Elvis type material. Um, but then he does. You know, he has a book out, and so he does signings and and uh, personal appearances to talk about all that stuff it's funny because we just played uh on this tour that i just finished this white album tour we played what was the international it became the hilton hotel which was elvis's yeah. building over there in vegas, in vegas and ended up being the las vegas hotel now it's the i can't remember the name of it it's gone to another ownership but it was so cool being on that stage again wow I was on, not to take off this whole podcast with the It's Elvis. your podcast. Yeah. It's your podcast, we'll, and I'll cry we'll, if I want to. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll bump you, you off of Elvis. You that tune, right? Quincy? That's right. Yeah. That was one of Quincy's first tunes that he ever mm. produced. Leslie yeah. Gore. But uh, I was on stage with Elvis in 1977 on that stage. My wow. dad got me and my brother Darren. I said, Darren, you're coming to the first show. Jason, you're coming to the second. Wow. We need to get you a black um, long sleeve button-up shirt, and you're going to be in the percussion stand. Huh. How cool is that? That's, so, I never heard that story. That's I was so on cool. stage with wow. Elvis. They gave, the guy gave me a, a tambourine, wow. said, you want to look like you're doing something? And and um, and I, I said, sure. So I started playing. I'll never forget it. The Sweet Inspirations came out, so we were warming them up, and they played Getaway, where Earth went in fire. <laughs> and uh, I can't remember the other songs, but I remember that one. And then J.D. Sumner in the Stamps Quartet, came out and I'm playing away and all of a sudden Elvis came on stage and I remembered thinking, tambourine's cut. And so I stopped playing. I lied for about a year and said I played with Elvis, but the truth of the matter is I didn't play one one little jingle jangle of a tambourine because I was paranoid that Elvis would be Who's that drooling me off back there? Is that Jerry, son? Jason, Jerry, you're fired. Well, you know, you know, one, one of my favorite of all 
notations in music is a rest. And I guess you were just taking a rest, I, right? I, you're right. I played with Elvis. You left some Thank space, you, man. You did. I played a big rest. <laughs> he played the right part for you on that stage and for him. Uh, it was the perfect part. <laughs> it was perfect. I didn't throw him off. My brother, Darren, uh, I talked to him recently about this. I said, Darren, did you keep playing with Elvis? He goes, I sure did. I said, you got to play with him. I didn't play with him. <laughs> Well, you might have had the more tasty part by laying out. I don't know. Who knows? So, so tell me, what was that like? You know, I mean, did you ever get to meet Elvis no. and talk to Elvis? Really? Although that they've kept that venue really, pretty much. Other than they've changed the the stage, of course, they've kept one square of the original wood, and it's like they've got like a little you know thing. Elvis was here, and it was the coolest thing. Downstairs, though, they've kept exactly like it was, including Elvis's dressing room. Um, and then there's this little secret hallway that goes to this bar, this wow. secret Ooh. bar that had these two stairways that went up to the stage. And I'll never forget, my dad took me there. And it was kind of smoky because everybody was smoking. You were allowed to smoke back then, you know, around. And um, Yeah, they don't have smoking casinos no, anymore, right? No, And I just remember walking down this hallway, and it was hazy because of the cigarette smoke. And there was Joe Gersio the uh the conductor and like a handful of the guys sitting around the bar just and there it was they've sealed it off so the the stairs don't go through anymore but it's so cool because they've kept it like it was so what did they call those guys his buddies a memphis mafia or yeah. something what was you know something yeah. like that and it was like all elvis's buddies that he kind of grew up with that he wanted that to turned be out on of the him road. towards the end i heard they wrote yeah. books some <laughs> of them yeah well they were probably keeping some secrets for a long sure. time you know so but uh <laughs> At some point, they wanted to cash in, I would guess, you know, so, but, uh, you know, when I was a kid, and I'm older than you guys, but I mean, you know, Elvis was like, to the young people, what the Beatles were later on. I mean, it was, you know, there was one level, and then everything was below Elvis, and when the Beatles came out, there was one level there, and everything was below them, and, you know, I mean, all the other groups could play great, and there was, you know, all kinds of good music going on, but... Those guys were setting the tone for everything. You know what's crazy is that, um, real quickly, I just finished this tour performing the White Album with uh, an all-star group. It was Todd Rundgren, Christopher Cross, um, Mickey Dolenz, and Joey Molland of Badfinger. So I was getting a lot of questions in, in uh, interviews. What did the White Album mean to you when it was released? And I said I was six years old, so it didn't mean anything to me. But... Elton John and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road were really my Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band experience. That lit me up, made me want to play music. So Dee Murray was was really one of my first influences as a bass player. And he, looking back on it, he's, he's a McCartney freak. Obviously, he slides into his notes, and so I started playing that way. I slide into notes um, a lot. And then joining Chicago... They're self-admitted Beatles freaks, right? So Peter Cetera, big McCartney fan, very lyrical bass player. So to go back and study the music was so cool, kind of figuring out what your DNA is made of. Well, working with these guys like Todd Rundgren, who, who obviously the Beatles are what lit him up. Oh, yeah, he, you can hear it in a lot of his early Absolutely, music. and Joey Molland of Badfinger was, um, you know, he, he talks about Elvis lighting mm -hmm. him up, and so did Todd. So yeah. James Burton being really who these guys really started listening to. James just had an 80th birthday, and we, we had a celebration for him in Nashville about a month ago. Brian May, 
was uh-huh. there. I played 25 or 6 to 4. Connor played uh-huh. bass. And there's Brian May playing wow. with us, who's a James Burton freak. Wow. Wow. Joe Walsh, Skunk Baxter. And so when you start seeing all this stuff and then realizing that this is your, your lineage, so it's like Elvis... And then all of a sudden, my era is 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 Tim Pierce and all the guys that I came up with. So it's all this incredible family tree. Really. That's wild. You know, I remember, uh, I know James a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know James did play with Elvis for quite a bit. But mm-hmm. when I was a kid, um, the Ozzy and Harriet show was yep. on. And uh, James played with Ricky Nelson. Mm-hmm. And when I was a kid, the very end of that show, they would have like a musical uh portion of the show and it would be Ricky Nelson playing as soon as James Burton was a guitar player and um, everybody would go wow who's that guitar player with Ricky I mean you listen to those tunes like Traveling Man and all that and those solos and the, just the whole guitar thing that James did with that and then Elvis apparently you know picked up on that and uh, and hired James to do his thing with uh, with the Elvis thing and he had the sweet inspirations who were mm-hmm. great background vocalists. He had the Jordan Eras actually mm-hmm. originally, right? Mm-hmm. You know, who were their uh, the Sky background vocal group who were fantastic. And then he went to the Sweet Inspirations, had more of a gospel thing. And Elvis really loved gospel music, so he yeah. was really into it. Yeah. So, but uh, you know, one thing I just want to point out is, um, you know, what what you do with playing bass and being able to play and sing. At the same time, you know, there's very few bass players that can do that because the way you play, too, you're so independent. You don't usually repeat things exactly the same way every time around. And yet, you know, when you're singing, your your head's like in one spot and your rhythm is in one spot and then the bass is in another spot holding the groove down. And it's very difficult to do. Not a lot of people. I mean, if you're just playing boom, 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 that's one thing. But if you're playing any kind of intricate stuff and stuff like that what you do um there's very few people that can do that and i love your your bass playing because you're so independent and so funky and and uh but yet you can do that and sing at the same time tim what do you think about that I mean, well he's just doing bong bong twice as fast basically is that that's what a, it is that's a trick no the he's bong bong. out jason's very gifted and it's it's a natural it's a natural thing ever since the first time i met him i was kind of astounded by his ability to do that he can syncopate on the bass in a very complicated way it never sounds complicated it sounds it's just free and then he covers the vocal melody at the same time i don't think you really even think about it do you i think that's probably it's like it's kind of i think that's the parlor trick if i was thinking about it yeah I don't think I'd be able to really do it. I, I, it's easy to say, though, but that's it's a gift you have. And well, well, well yeah, now we yeah. fucked you up. Now you're going to start thinking about it. It might mess you up for the exactly. rest of your career. I was thinking about it a lot when we were trying to play that lick. You know, <laughs> you see what happens? But I really think that's the, that's the case. Yeah, if it, if it was a set part and I had to do it every time. I mean, yeah, I'd be able to do it, but I don't think it would be as free. And yeah. as, you know. But I love the bass. It was what I came up playing i didn't want to sing my mother was pounding on me to sing and i thought no that's not cool because i'm a tenor i think that's why i really wasn't interested in singing at first because i didn't sound manly well you know the, the one thing about you know the way a lot of people who play in bands end up as a singer is that everybody goes who wants to sing Nobody raises their voice or raises (laughs) their hand, and then somebody goes, well, uh, if nobody will, I guess I'll do it, you know, and sometimes you get just thrown in the fire because you're the volunteer, you know, so, uh, but you can really sing, and, uh, you know, 
just so when you started out, um, did you go? Yeah, I know you played in a band called Keen, mm-hmm. and they were you were out here, and this was mm-hmm. what in the late seventies and that kind of thing, just before. Uh, that you was went right to around nineteen eighty, eighty one, eighty one, eighty two, and uh, it's funny. I saw them, Tom and John Keen. They were child prodigies, and I saw them on TV in San Diego. Uh, either Merv Griffin or they were on the Tonight Show. Mike Douglas, yeah, yeah. Tonight Show. Johnny Joan Carson. Rivers, yeah. And I saw them. And by the way, at the time, I was I was really starting to play a lot of bass. I was interested in more challenging music. You know, I grew up in a in a beach community, so the bands that were popular were surf bands, and I wasn't interested in that kind of music. I liked Weather Report and Earth, Wind, and Fire, and I was starting to really kind of go off into that world. And so um, I, uh, so I, I, I thought pretty highly of myself because <laughs> people were telling me I was good, and you know I was this young kid, and until I saw those guys, and it just totally brought me right size because they were so advanced, and I went, you know, you're a you're a big fish in a small pond, but man, that that pond became an ocean, and it's like I was a minnow. And I said to my mother, if I could meet those kids, I bet we'd make great music. What a weird thing to say because it was like a pipe dream. You know, it's it's literally like just throwing some kind of words out there. I got to L.A., and one of the first guys I met was a great guitar player named Pete, Peter Atanasoff. And Peter, one of the first things he said is, you got to meet my friends Tommy and John Keane. And I go, <laughs> those kids? He goes, yeah, they're really good friends of mine. Some of the first people I met. Boom. We were Exciting. fast friends. My brother Darren and me and the Keen brothers, inseparable. And um, ironically, not to go on too many tangents, but Tom was really super close to David Foster. David Foster's first production, record production, was the Keen brothers. Really? With Bill Champlin coming in to sing vocals. So this this, this world gets so small. It's I crazy. know Bill, and we did a podcast with Bill recently. Too. Oh, great, yeah, man. Yeah, what a great guy. And an he, idol of mine, because he wrote one of my favorite tunes After of all the time. Love. That's yeah. the one. Yeah, absolutely. What a tune that is. And with my friend Jay Graydon. Oh, and, yeah. you know, But that's one of the great R&B tunes of all times. I mean, you know, the chord changes, everything, the voice oh, absolutely. is just incredible. So that's that's basically what you're you're looking at at this time is right after that song was out, I'm in L.A., I meet these kids, David Foster, Tom would call me up, and he said, hey, man, want to go to Dablin? Foster's producing the tubes. I'm going, okay. I'm just like Tom's little buddy, you know, nobody knows me. We walk into Dablin, and there's David cutting the guitars on Wild Women of Wongo, and I'm like just sitting, fly on the wall, and there's Humberto Gatica, and I'm like, you know, they barely, hey, this is Tom's friend. Next thing I know, Tom calls me and says, hey, man, I want to go down to uh, Davlin Foster's producing Chicago. I go down there with him. <clears throat> They're cutting drums on Hard to Say I'm Sorry. Uh-huh. Robert Lamb and one of the other guys walks in. They don't even, you know, I'm just some punk kid standing off the side. I'm watching this happen. <clears throat> and then, you know, eight months later, whatever, driving over Laurel Canyon and Hard to Say I'm Sorry comes on the radio. And it's like, you know, I the was there. Part. Right? Yeah. Well, you wow. heard it on the radio. You knew that this is revolutionary. <sighs> Something's yep. changing wow. so dramatically. And so those, all those seeds being planted, and that's through Tom Kane. Well, three years later, whatever it was, I joined the band to replace Peter Cetera. It's just crazy 
how that all led up to that. And then Tom co-writes Will You Still Love Me, the first hit that I sang for the huh. band. So all this stuff coming from watching on the Mike Douglas show going, if I can make some music with those kids, I better be pretty cool. And then Tim's super tight with all of them, too. It's just crazy. Yeah, the thing about moving to L.A., uh, and you moved up from San Diego, right? Yep. Basically, you, you move here, and it, it, it was astounding to me, too. All of a sudden, I was working with the people that I was listening to on records in my bedroom as a little kid. And it takes some years for that to happen. It happened really quick for you. Some things happened really quick for me, though, too. And it still happens. I still work with people. Some of them are in their 70s now. <laughs> Who are my heroes who, back then? Who might they be? Just like so Neil Diamond. Know. I'm going to do another Neil Diamond record in January. My friend, our friend, Walter Afanasyev, wrote wow. All I Want for Christmas, which went to number one on Billboard. Wow. Uh, it went to number three in the early 90s, but it just went to number one on Billboard with Mariah Carey. It's an old song, but it, Christmas songs last forever. Walter's doing a, a record with uh, Neil Diamond, and I worked on Neil's last two records, so I've been in there for a little while, but... I mean, that was my first concert, Neil Diamond. So what happens, kids, when you move here, move to Nashville, move to L.A.? It can happen very quickly. Dreams can come true. Yeah, you work well, with the people you idolize. I, well, just so you people know, because, I mean, I, and I say this every time Tim's around, and, you know, I mean, I don't like to make him blush because he gets so funny like that, you know. But, you know, everybody from Santana to Michael Jackson to uh, Barbara Streisand to... Uh, the Goo Goo Dolls. I mean, just to yeah, name a very few. This guy's got a record of playing on people's tunes that is pretty hard to fathom. That you could come in and play all those styles, play them all correctly, and play the tasteful part that makes the record. So it's just pretty amazing to me to be able to be able to do that. You know, so a lot of people play original material because they can't really play other people's material. So they got to do something that they're capable of doing, so they write something by themselves. But you can play. It's, yeah, whatever. it's usually a pretty simple approach, but it, you have to give the you have to give the artist what they're looking for, and you have to do it immediately. And that's that's probably the the, the biggest skill is you have to show up and give it give it to them right away. I, re I remember when you were saying uh, that what you like to do is you like to be able to get the chorus first, right? Yeah, you exactly. Get the chorus yeah. down, because once yeah. you got the chorus happening, that's the yeah. hook and the yeah. Yeah. the selling point of the tune, and then once you got that, then you can figure out the verses from there. Yeah, I do. If I'm overdubbing, yes, yes. Let me say chorus. something about what he does, too, <laughs> because it's hard when it's you, yeah. as we can sit back and, and, and watch this. But as a guy who is... You know, has been an artist. Did I say has been an artist? <laughs> has oh, been yeah. an artist. Has been an artist. Has been an artist and a session musician. Being the artist and having somebody come in and work for you, play, you know, I don't really like to call it that when I'm with Tim because we're hanging out, but you don't have time to experiment. I mean, if you've got a band and they're, they're not really experienced in the studio, that, fine, that's one thing. But if you... And it's not even so much that you don't have the time. It's like it's it's a it's a um, a momentum, and it's there's a there's a vibe that happens when you when 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 the the red light goes on, and somebody starts playing something and it's just elevating the music. What he has to do is come up with brilliant parts that are world class immediately, and that's what he does. That's why he's worked so long. I mean. At a certain point, you go, when's this guy going to run out of this? But he doesn't. That's, that is what really, because if you do, you're done. Right. 
right? And so it's well, amazing. you got a producer that's in there, and, you know, if things aren't mm-hmm. working out, a lot of the times the producer is there to go, well, okay, let's call the other guy in yeah, or something like they, that. You you know, they they, they can't way. waste a lot of time. Yeah, yeah, you don't that's why that. a producer that knows I'm going to call mm-hmm. this guy because I know what I'm going to get, you know. Right. Um, and then you have to be able to play something, and when they want this part of it changed, you have to bend it, keep bending it until it's exactly what they want. That's the other thing, too. You have to keep tailoring it until it's exactly exactly right. Well, he's kind of like the uh, modern-day wrecking crew. We had yep. Don Peek in here, yeah. who is a great yeah. guitar player, playing on so many fantastic tunes as well. And those guys, they were the insurance guys. You know, when mm-hmm. Phil Spector or yeah. uh, you know Brian Wilson or any of those guys went into the studio and they had like, you know, they might have three drummers or two drummers and percussionists and string people and, you know, and horns and all that. You can't have 25 people sitting there while one guy's working out his part. It's true. Right. And it's about the pocket and the sound and how it feels and how it fits in. You know? Choosing the right instrument for yeah. the uh, yeah. the track. I've been listening to some classic Music, like let's say 70s, mainly 70s, where the technology wasn't there to really grid everything up and drum machines, and it wasn't there. You had to play it. I've been listening to some classic records lately of bands and kind of really trying to play a game of, all right, who's the hired gun in this? Because those records and the producers made sure of it, that, as you said, the pocket, and, it, and obviously the drums are what yeah. it starts with. I know a lot of times they'd, they'd bring ringer drummers in because you have to have that foundation. But even like guitar parts, I was listening to a Pretender song today going, I wonder if that's the guy or there's like a little percolating thing on brass and pocket that I was going. That's so world class. They may have taken like a long time or maybe not. Maybe the guy was really great. But I've been playing that little game because that's, I know it was expensive back then, but they made sure that the feel in the pocket was Of there. every part, the feel in the pocket of every part. Exactly. Yeah. It's not programming. It had to happen in a human way. And we came up that way. Yeah. That's what was so great yeah. about being our age is that the gear wasn't there. In order to make it in the door, you had to be able to pull it off. And when these guys are like talking about the pocket and all that kind of stuff, when when you go in and record a tune, you know, the tempo of that tune, you know, if it's a little bit too fast, it sounds nervous. If it's a little bit too back, it sounds asleep. You know, and, and it's like building a house, right? If the yeah. if the foundation isn't there, if the drums and bass aren't there in the beginning, you know, you can't as a friend of mine once said you can't polish a turd and uh you know if it if it's not there from the beginning no matter what stuff you lay on top of it it's just not going to be there right yeah the bass and drums that was the most crucial slot and that had to be done right really the drums but whoever counted if the producer was making sure going you know that's a little bit fast let's slow it down you know for that track to make sure I was sure just thinking yeah. the same thing of like how important that was to yeah. get the tempo right. Yeah, the tempo. The tempo. To make the lyric feel just right. Yeah. So everything's breathing Settled. and yeah. not nervous and yeah. not, not you know, squeezing words in. And, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. So You know, the great the great drummer Tristan Bowden that I played, you know, so many years in Chicago with always said, you know, you guys had it you know, we always had to get it right, man. The drums had it's to get it right. You guys got to come back in and yeah. fix and repair. And I, so yeah. I really feel the for hot drummers. Seat. The hot <laughs> exactly. Seat. Yeah. You know. There it is. Oh, I got to fix. 
You, the drummer couldn't say that. No, they can now. But hey, how old were you when you joined Chicago? Do you mind me jumping to there? Twenty-three. <laughs> Twenty-three. Wow. Norm, think about that. P- replacing Peter Cetera in a super band at age twenty-three. It was yep. never wow. going to work. I've been, th- you know, <laughs> we've been running this down in in interviews, and they just say, looking back on it, it, it was impossible. There's no way this is going to work. And Foster. You know, I've thanked him and for And playing bass and singing, you know. Well, that so. part, you know, that they, I I was, when I did the audition, they were happy, you know, with my bass playing. But the singing thing, my my tape, you know, because as you know, Bobby Caldwell and I were really yeah. thick as Bobby and I used singing. to play together. That's why I yeah. came out here with originally. And yeah. if you guys don't know who Bobby Caldwell is, if you want to hear a tasty musician who is like a fantastic singer and just a great songwriter, and you wrote uh, a, a couple of big tunes. Heart with of Bobby Mine too. with Bobby. Yeah. Heart of oh, Mine yeah. is a fantastic yeah. tune. <clears throat> I know Boz Skaggs had a big hit with that, right? Mm-hmm. That was re- really what launched my career, and it was it was Bobby. But if you listen to Chicago 18, my first record, part a big part of the reason that it worked for me is I was just trying to cop Bobby. Well, that's oh, a good person to copy. Yeah. You know, everybody copies yeah. somebody. Absolutely. Not, not, you know, note for note or feel for feel, but, you know, you assimilate all these people that are your influences, and then you create your well, own style. Well, his phrasing. If you, the first song on that album is called Niagara Falls, and it just was unbelievable, his demo. Um, and jumping back to Foster real quick, David heard this demo, and he heard our demos that we submitted. And there's, there's no way I wowed him with what we recorded i mean this is replacing peter cetera and he kind of panicked a little bit and and asked bobby to come in and help out he called the guys in the band and and uh and robert lamb specifically told him sorry you're working with him he's our guy and getting in the studio and recording was when i won david over and that and and everything worked because it felt comfortable and i loved i was really starting to to learn how to record vocally but Bobby, if you listen to Niagara Falls, and it's it's phenomenal. The record's phenomenal. The you know the vocal. All I was doing was copying Bobby's phrasing. So of course it was like, it was amazing. And Henry but, Marks, his manager yeah, at the time, I just know said, Henry very well. "Is that fact, Bobby?" Yeah, some of my publishing. You know? <laughs> but I'll tell you, um, one thing that's kind of you know really cool is that you know, you know, there's some people when you're recording. And when you're playing live, when you're playing live, um, you know, my voice always was like this big, thick voice that kind of smothered tracks. And and Bobby's voice had this transparency that just lived in the track. And it just worked. And I didn't realize how good a singer Bobby was in the beginning because we came out. He was like 17 years old when I started working with him in Miami. And, you know, I thought he was a very talented musician. I mean, he heard everything, didn't know anything really about the technical end of music, but he was like so sophisticated in his voicings and what he heard. But when he put his voice on tape, I kind of, it was when I first had to kind of eat crow because I was singing more than Bobby was Mm -hmm. in the band. And, you know, live, I had a louder voice and whatever, but... Bobby, his voice to tape was just pretty amazing. Listen, before we come back, because we got a lot to talk about, I want to get you guys to just play a little bit. And Jason, I just want you to, um, if you would just sing a little bit. You know, one thing that you guys did uh, in my store one time, which was really cool, one of my favorite tunes, was uh, Isley Brothers' tune called Work to Do. So we'll do a little bit of that. And when we come out of that, we're going to take a little break. And, uh, you know, I'll 
signal that, and then we'll uh, be back for some more. Hey, everybody, go to allguitarnetwork.com or go to the App Store and download the All Guitar Network. It's free, and you get to see these podcasts for free the following week. The podcast will be on a Tuesday. The following Tuesday, you'll see the video at the All Guitar Network exclusively. Sitting cross-legged on the Everybody, we're back, and I've got the great Jason Chef from Chicago and from many, many other things. We've got Tim Pierce from uh, the man of a thousand faces and the man of a thousand sounds playing on everybody's tracks and uh, everybody calling him back. And then Tim going, I don't know if I need to do that anymore, you know, so he's so busy producing and all that. But it's really kind of a cool thing, you know, having these guys, and these guys all live not far from this store. And uh, they can be my victims, and they can be my friends, and uh, but they know I love music, and they know how much I love their playing. So uh, it's just a pleasure having these guys. So, um, Jason, there's, uh, you know, I want to ask both of you guys something because uh, I never really had the pleasure of this, but it must be so amazing when you guys, wherever you might be, where you might be in a store, you might be in a department, uh, grocery store you might be at a stadium and all of a sudden one of your tunes that you played on comes on I mean what kind of feeling is that I mean you know when all of a sudden the whole crowd's kind of going nuts and it might be